come back to paragraph 4 in chapter 31 dealing with synods and councils. And this has to do with, as you may recall, the, the function, the limited jurisdiction of church synods and councils. We've seen that they're appointed by God. They're provided for the edification and peace of the church. Uh, they are instructed to act ministerially, that is, to take the Word of God and to seek the will of Christ in dealing with various matters that we are to determine what God's will in that issue is, but that as composed and comprised of fallen men, uh, it is sadly the case that these synods and councils, even when they undertake that task, with diligence, uh, they may err, and many have erred. Uh, so in the third paragraph, they're not to be made the rule of faith or practice, but to be used as a help in both. We saw that that was one of the key departures from the Roman Catholic theology in the days of the Reformation, and continues to be a huge difference in terms of where do God's people look to discern the will of God for their lives. How are they to live? What are they to believe? The Protestant reformers um, remind us and point us back that it is sola scriptura. It is the Bible alone that reveals the mind of God to us. He's not given the church to be the, uh, the institution that speaks for him in this world. Um, it is not the means of grace that the church uh, is to provide to us, although she is uh, to minister God's means of grace. But the grace comes from him, the faith comes from him, the, the divine revelation comes from him. And the church is not a mediator between God and the people of his family. Uh, we can look directly to him and even hold the church councils accountable to the Word of God, just as we saw the Bereans in the preaching of the Apostle Paul. They searched the Scriptures daily to see that these things were so. And so these synods or councils, they're, they're not uh, infallible. They're not um, on par with the Scriptures. They do have a function to serve. If they weren't to meet, then there would be more chaos. And sadly, we see very little of biblical practice of this in the age of the church in which we live. And that does contribute to the fractured, um, unbelieving, uh, chaotic state of the church, that there are not such things as the Jerusalem Council meeting and dealing with things from a biblical basis. It's a sad state of the church that we witness, but we take comfort in the promises of the Lord Jesus. And this last paragraph, paragraph 4, deals with this matter of jurisdiction. So what are synods and councils to address and what are they to uh, leave alone? And in this paragraph, we saw that synods and councils, we'll read it together, synods and councils are to handle or conclude nothing but that which is ecclesiastical and are not to intermeddle with civil affairs which concern the commonwealth unless by way of humble petition in cases extraordinary or by way of advice for satisfaction of conscience if they be thereunto required by the civil magistrate. And the point of this paragraph is to keep the church focused upon her task and her mission 
and the weapons that God has given her to fight evil in this world. Synods and councils are not to handle or conclude civil matters. That is, they're not to attempt to take up the civil magistrate's sword. They're not to uh, undertake a, a civil trial of uh, criminal action. That's the job of the civil magistrate. They're not to impose uh, a temporal, corporal punishment upon wrongdoing. That's the civil magistrate's job. So church synods and councils are to handle nothing, handle or conclude nothing but that which is ecclesiastical. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5 there. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We looked last week at uh, the references that the confession lists in uh, Luke chapter 12, how the Lord Jesus declined to stop his preaching ministry, sharing the gospel, and settle that matter of an, a disputed inheritance. Why? Because he had something much more pressing and more important to deal with. Not that temporal justice is something that God doesn't care about. It doesn't take much reading in the scriptures to see that's not the case. God would send his prophets repeatedly to admonish them for their faithlessness, for their departure from covenant faithful fellowship with him, and the grounds or the evidence of that again and again, he would point to they have abandoned justice, they've abandoned righteousness, they are not upholding the cause of the widow, they are oppressing their fellow man, they are uh, enslaving their brothers. These are all instances where God shows us over and over and over he very much is concerned that there be justice in the temporal sphere. But again, as a matter of comparison and as a matter of what was Jesus come to accomplish, he had not come as the civil magistrate of his day to settle those issues, but he had come as the Messiah first to preach and proclaim the gospel and then to accomplish that with his life and death. So it's important not to take that too far. It's not, it would be wrong to conclude from Luke 12 that Jesus doesn't want us to care about things like that. Well, it doesn't matter if someone's stealing from you or robbing from you, or conversely, it doesn't matter if you rob for, from them. We just need to talk about eternal things. That would be a wrong conclusion. But the point is, uh, true that Jesus declined to stop proclaiming the gospel to settle that. He wanted that man uh, to ensure the most important thing first, that he would have his share of the eternal inheritance. This man was interrupting Jesus, seeking to teach and preach a multitude about an eternal unfading inheritance because he was more concerned about his share of a temporal and perishable inheritance. And so Jesus' point, of course, is clear and plain. And he goes on to show in the parable of the fool, if you turn back with me to Luke 12, uh, he, he, at the conclusion of this, in verse 16, he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this, I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. 
What was this man's perspective? What was his passion? What was his focus on? Only the things of this life. He was focused entirely upon the goods of this life and expanding those and growing those. And then he finally concludes, well, I've done that and now I can enjoy it. And at that very moment, that very night in verse 20, God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And so Jesus is addressing the more important issue, the more pressing issue. Not to say that it's wrong to be diligent and work and seek to acquire the goods of this world, to care for yourself and your family and those around you. That's actually commanded in Ephesians 4 and other places. But we, wouldn't, we, would, we would be doing a great disservice to the gospel and to God's word if we were to put all of our focus and emphasis upon that and never, certainly, even, even if we were not beginning with, but, but to never get to, as this, this fool did, to never uh, address the matter of your poverty toward God. Uh, you have laid up nothing for yourself in heaven. You've not attended to the spiritual matters of your soul and your life. And so that's what Jesus was dealing with. So it does, there is an application to the church. There's an application to the church that she has a job to do. The civil magistrate has a job to do, both under the authority of God. And the church has a commission that we read in Matthew 28 that she is to go and proclaim the gospel, baptize the nations, make them the disciples of Jesus Christ. She is to teach them this gospel of God's love and Christ's salvation and how to live as a follower of Jesus, teaching, teaching them to observe all the things I have commanded you. And so it's not a narrow gospel. It's not a truncated gospel where the only thing I'll talk to you about is what's going to happen to you when you die. The Christian gospel certainly begins there with the necessity of the work of Christ for you that you might escape the judgment of God. But the Christian gospel goes on to address all of life. How are you to be a disciple of Jesus? How are you to live in a way that will please and honor God and show love to your fellow man? That is what the scriptures include. And that's the church's role. The church is to share the gospel and disciple the nations to teach God's word to this world of what his will is, to show them the need of the gospel, to, to proclaim that gospel, and to disciple uh, the nations of the world uh, for the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's a different job than the civil magistrate has. Let's turn over to Romans chapter 13 quickly. In Romans 13, we read about a different minister or servant of God. In Romans 13, verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, 
Be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoers. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. And so that is the role of the civil magistrate to, as we read there, carry out God's wrath on the wrongdoer, to punish the evildoer in society for that open doing of evil. It is to serve as a check upon evil, uh, to, to be a demonstration of God's displeasure with evil, to be a terror to evildoers, as we read in verse 3, and to do this, that those who do good would be approved and free and at peace to live their lives for the glory of God. Now, that's the job of the civil magistrate. The church is not to undertake that job. That's what this fourth paragraph is speaking to. Now, if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Actually, we'll con- we'll, I'm going to reorder this. Let's go, to, um, let's go to John, John 18. This is where Jesus is speaking with Pilate. This is the second of the references, the confession lists, where Jesus is speaking with Pilate, and he is making clear that he has come to establish a kingdom, that he has a kingdom, that he is a king, but his kingdom is of a different nature or a different order than the kingdoms of men because the enemy that Jesus has come to overcome in the conquest of the world by his kingdom, it's not other political orders on earth per se, but it is rather the evil of sin that Jesus Christ has come to fight against, to overcome, and to conquer. He has an enemy, as he described in his, uh, in his teaching, of one cannot enter the house of the strong man and plunder it, but first he must bind the strong man. Then he may enter his house and plunder it. That's what Jesus has come to do. The enemy, the strong man, the evil one, Jesus has come and he has overpowered him, and he is plundering his house. And so that's what Jesus is making reference to here in John chapter 18, verse 36. Pilate, it, it doesn't make any sense at all to him that a king who, who is claiming to have some kingdom, some following, uh, why would he peaceably uh, consent to being led away by his enemies uh, to face judgment and execution in their court? That doesn't make any sense. To Pilate. And so in verse, um, verse 33, Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting 
that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Peter said to him, What is truth? And then, of course, he goes on to condemn Jesus, though he knows him to be innocent. Now, what are, we, what are we reminded of here? That Jesus does have a kingdom. He is ruling over it. But the weapons of his kingdom aren't the weapons of this world. He doesn't advance his kingdom through a show of force. Jesus could have easily overwhelmed by force the inhabitants of the world. He even made reference to that when Peter was so eager to defend him with the sword, you remember. Jesus reminded him, Peter, don't you know that if I wished, I could call on my father and he would send 12 legions of angels? Don't you know I could? Do, I, that's not the problem. I could accomplish that very easily. But Jesus does not come just to overpower the inhabitants of this world, but to truly deliver them, to overpower the evil one who has enslaved them, to set them free and he is dealing with a bondage of a spiritual nature. Certainly, the enemies of the Lord Jesus express their rebellion in many palpable and physical ways. We've seen many cases of that in the history of the world. Even today, we can see that. That wicked men do show a rebellion against God by physical force and oppression and attack against others around them. That's true. But that's not overcome by the Lord Jesus by him applying a greater show of force and just physically overcoming them. No, he is fighting in this world a spiritual war to capture the hearts and minds of the children of God back to their father. And so if we look at, let's look at um, 2 Corinthians 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We just read Romans chapter 13, and that had reference to a sword, a sword of physical force that the civil magistrate is called by God to use to restrain, to fight against those outward demonstrations of evil, to restrain them, to hold them in check. But the civil magistrate, he can't change a person's heart. He can't deal with the root of the problem. He can only hold in check or punish or even execute someone that has done something, he doesn't have the power with his sword to actually deal with the root of the problem. He can only hold in check the outward expression of it. So in, uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul makes reference again to the church's role in this battle against evil that the Lord Jesus has declared against his enemy. He has commissioned the church and equipped the church with the weapons to fight the spiritual root of that problem, to plunder the kingdom itself, to free someone from the kingdom of darkness that they might be transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved Son, as we read in Colossians 1. It's not something the church in and of herself can do, but she's been given divinely empowered weapons to wield in that conflict that God blesses and uses to accomplish that very thing. 
In 2 Corinthians 10, let's just begin in verse 1. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away, I beg of you that when I am present I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. This is Paul's explanation of the church's role. The civil magistrate is, is using the, weapon, the weapons of war. A sword is a weapon of war. And a civil magistrate is given the sword of the flesh to wage war against the outward expressions of evil in a society. To hold those in check. To put fear in those who would just give open expression to every act of evil that would enter their fallen heart. A civil magistrate is supposed to be there to instill fear in the ones who would otherwise just run rampant, murdering and doing all manner of evil. That's his role. But he can't fight the evil itself. This is where the church has been given this commission by the Lord Jesus. She is continuing the work that he came and began in his earthly ministry in this respect. She's taking up the same weapons that he used. He went about preaching and proclaiming the gospel. He went about showing the power of God against evil and bringing the mercy of God to overcome uh, the wickedness of sinful hearts. And so the church also, in verse 4 uh, we're not waging war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Let's also look at Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, we, we do think of this, and rightly so, in terms of our personal walk with God, our personal spiritual life. But I, I want you to read these verses in another light as well, and that is in this broader concept of the church being the army of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just individual Christians being in view here, but the church as a whole, just as Paul said, being equipped by Jesus Christ with divinely empowered weapons to fight against his enemies in the kingdom of darkness. And so I want you to, in, in Ephesians chapter 6, look at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, again, I'm not trying to diminish the importance of, of viewing this in terms of a personal understanding. But these, these, this language of, of this war and the armor of God and us as a church, this is written to the whole church of Ephesus and all believers. Read this as the word God has given us to his children. 
that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. He is plotting and scheming against the Lord Jesus Christ, against his people, seeking to thwart the purpose of God still. He's like a, a wounded lion roaming about seeking whom he may devour. And the, the devil is, is not um, deceived in the sense that he thinks any one of us is his great enemy. He knows who his great enemy is. His great enemy is the Lord Jesus Christ. The devil's not like God where he is uh, in all places omnipresent. No, he, he has um, limitations and, and he's not um, plotting his schemes around each of us individually. That's probably a comfort to most of us. But he has a scheme against the broader kingdom of God and against God himself, against the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we are involved in that conflict, but it's not all calculated around us. This is part of a larger warfare that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Look at verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And again, it, it's just a slight shift of perspective, but I think it's helpful to realize what's in view here is not a solitary individual being told to put on their armor, but it is an entire army of the people of God being called to stand together in this army of the Lord Jesus in his conflict against his enemy. We play a very small role, typically, in that army. But nonetheless, we're called to be faithful. We're called to stand behind the banner of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's an army in view more than a soldier. And in verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be with, able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having taken up the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Notice that. You're looking down the line of all the others in line with you, standing on the line with you to fight against this battle. And you're praying not just for yourself, but you're praying for all the saints who are engaged in this same conflict with you. And also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly, as I ought to speak. And so that's the perspective that we should have as the people of God, that we're in a conflict. It's Jesus' war against his enemy. We are privileged as his servants, as his children, as his brothers and sisters. He's called us to follow him into this battle. 
and we are actually waging war against the root of the problem, against the heart of the matter, in this spiritual conflict with his enemy. And the Lord Jesus is, is powerfully conquering his enemy. Not Again, it would be so easy for Jesus Christ to just, through a show of force, bring all of his enemies to heal and to subjection. And he will do that when he returns in glory. That will have been the final moment, the final opportunity for repentance. And that's what uh, we read in, in 2 Peter. Why is it that the Lord is tarrying? Why is he delaying? He's giving an opportunity for repentance. But that day will come to an end. Jesus will return. And he will, with force, subdue, subdue all of his enemies under his feet. That will be the end. But now... In this time before he returns, he is conquering and plundering this kingdom of darkness by capturing the servants of darkness, the, the children of darkness, and giving them a new heart to love God again and, and bringing them into his kingdom of blessing and glory. That's what Jesus is at work doing, and that's the conflict we're engaged in. So when we have that perspective... We come back to the business of the church and the role of the church. We're not rejecting the importance of temporal justice. That's why God has appointed the civil magistrate. But we can't put down these weapons in favor of the weapons of the flesh, which are powerless against the heart of the matter, against evil. And so the church is called upon in our confession to remember her role. Now, it's important, the language that's used here is that she not do the role of the civil magistrate, that she not handle or conclude anything that is not ecclesiastical. In other words, she's not to be doing the job of the civil magistrate. Some have misapplied this at times past in church history because that, we would agree, is a biblical perspective. She shouldn't be doing that job. But what is part of the church's job? If she's supposed to be doing her job, what does that include? Let's look at 1 Corinthians 5 for an example, first of all, where Paul calls the Corinthians not to do the job of the civil magistrate or whatever other authorities are out there in the world. They have a specific job to do that is focused in this passage, upon those who are inside the church. And then I'm going to read you a, a quick quote from a commentator that I think is very helpful and draws an important point to light. Now, in 1 Corinthians 5, we're reading about this case of gross sexual immorality that the church was tolerating. And Paul says, rather than rather than being arrogant, rather than being proud of themselves for being so um, open-minded and tolerant, being so forgiven by the grace of God that they don't even have to worry about the practice of gross sin anymore. In verse 2, are you arrogant? Rather, ought you not mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit and... And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment 
on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you're delivered this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That is, they're to put him outside the fellowship of the church. They're to declare him not within that kingdom of Christ that he had once been recognized a part of, but to tell him and everyone, no, he's still in this kingdom of darkness. He's still apart from Christ. He's still outside of the people of God. And we need to pray for him and uh, deal with him in such a way that would seek to bring him back in through his repentance, through his faith in Jesus. But he, he has believed a terrifying lie that he can live out the life of a child of the devil, but be right with God and a child of God. That is a lie. And that, that will lead him to a terrible realization on the day of judgment. If that lie goes unconfronted to that point, he'll be one of those standing there expecting to go into heaven. And Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. You practice, sir, of you who practice lawlessness. I think I just invented a word, practicer. To remember that. <laughs> First Corinthians 5, though. If you go down to um, verse 12, well, he, he goes through this, this principle of leaven. It, it will impact, it will, it will corrupt uh, those around it. It, it. It's like the leaven in the Old Testament that has to be cast outside the camp. That's what this sin is like. And so he deals with that through verse 8. Then he, he goes on to apply that principle in verses 9 and 10 in terms of how they need to be sanctified and kept apart from the corruption of sin, uh, that they should not give themselves in fellowship with those who are walking in the kingdom of darkness. Now in verse 12 he says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now, I think this commentator is, is helpful. Paul concludes with final injunction to expel the wicked man from the community in verse 13. In doing so, he contrasts the judgment of insiders and outsiders. Paul has no say in what unbelievers do, only believers. It is not the business of believers to judge the outsiders, but they must judge the insiders. In this context, however, the judgment has to do with the disciplinary action of the church and not to prophetic judgment of society. Now, what he's saying is very important. When Paul is talking about it's not our place to judge the outsider, he is speaking in terms of the discipline of the church. But he's not speaking in terms of declaring God's standard of judging right from wrong in society around you. That's, in fact, part of the church's mission, as he describes it, the prophetic judgment of society. That's part of the church's job. And some, as I said, in, in church history, have moved from acknowledging the church shouldn't do the job of the civil magistrate They've taken that a step further and said the church should not address the issues that the civil magistrate 
we'll end up dealing with. The church should be silent about those things. The church shouldn't press the Word of God upon God's people in the matters of this life, in terms of how you do your job and how you function as a family or how you view the issues of the day in terms of what is right and what is wrong, and fail to equip God's people to be salt and light, they're no longer living and acting as the children of God when this happens because they're just left to their own thoughts and imaginations of what would be the best thing to do. That's not what our confession is endorsing. Very clearly, the church isn't to do that job, but part of the church's role is, in fact, to speak to those issues, to declare with the sword of the Spirit. Remember, that's her weapon. She's to use the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, to fight against evil within and without the church. It's an aspect of her work of evangelism to declare, no, God says that is wrong. If you do that, you, you'll go to hell. You need to repent. You can be forgiven. Come to the Lord Jesus. Come into His kingdom and be forgiven and leave off those things. You can't preach the gospel without preaching about repentance. Just read the New Testament. Read John and his sermons. Read Jesus and his sermons in the New Testament. When he came declaring the kingdom of God, preaching the gospel, see how many times repentance features in that message. You can't declare the, the gospel that Jesus proclaimed and that he empowers without dealing with the matter of sin and righteousness and judgment, as we see the apostles also doing. And so the church has a sword. It's a spiritual sword, part of her armor, that all of God's people are to wield against evil. Now, we're not to, we're not to just stand in our sin and shout at society about their sins. No, we, we have to be like Jesus calls us to in Matthew 7, of looking to ourselves, of removing the log from our own eye, of helping one another grow. That's what Paul goes on to speak about in 2 Corinthians 10, that we are seeking to bring about the obedience of God's people, not just the world. We're seeking to bring every thought in obedience to Jesus Christ. That begins with ourselves and our, our family in the family of God. But it's not to say that we don't offer the standard of God to the world. We don't declare what is wrong in God's sight in the world. No, the church is to call all men everywhere. That includes the kings of the earth, the, the senators in the senate, the representatives in the Congress, the president in the White House, the church is to call all men everywhere to repent of living against God and to seek forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at a couple of examples quickly as we are running out of time. Um, hopefully this will be helpful and one you can remember if you ever run into someone who believes this. First of all, in Luke chapter 3, we see an example in the preaching of John the Baptist how he was there as the herald of Messiah. He was declaring that God's own Son had come into this world to be the Savior. 
But look what he takes time to address in the lives of those who are there gathered to hear him, who are wanting to know, well, so I believe you. I believe that gospel. I believe in the Messiah who is coming, and I am putting my trust in him. But what should I do? How should I live as one who has believed this gospel? Look what John says in Luke chapter 3, verse 18. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done. I, I got my context with the wrong passage, folks. John does go to speak to the, the soldiers who came to him and said, what about us, and so forth, and he gave the application of the gospel to their lives. But this passage that is referenced here in Luke 3.18 specifically deals with how John, as he's preaching the good news to the people, was reproving Herod the Tetrarch. He was reproving the king of the land for his wickedness as king. Look at verse 19 again. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he, added, that he locked up John in prison. So John was preaching the gospel of Jesus. He was the herald of Messiah. He was declaring, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Was he betraying that calling as the herald of Messiah? Or was he not rather being faithful to it when he was calling Herod? You need to recognize that the king of the world has been born. You need to recognize that the Lamb of God has come to take away sin, but all this world belongs to him. And John's message of making straight the crooked and filling in the low place and removing the high place, dealing with all of the failings and the shortcomings and the twistings of sinful men, uh, Herod was not exempt from that. He was, he was the recipient or the subject of John's preaching such that it wasn't just him stealing his brother's wife, but there at the end of verse 19, he had been reproved by him for all the evil things that Herod had done. He was calling him to repent just as he was calling all men to repent. And him being in the civil sphere did not give him an exemption from the ministry of the gospel that John brought. We also see a positive example, and we're running out of time, so we'll be quick. If you'll go to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 2, here's a positive example, a messianic prophecy that Isaiah brings about the latter days, which are fulfilled with the coming of this Messiah and in the days that follow. In verse 2, Isaiah writes, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it, and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths, for out of, the, out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. 
they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And so here we have an illustration of the peoples of the nations, but also their leaders coming to the kingdom of God saying, we've been converted, we've been persuaded of the, the crown rights of Jesus Christ, that he is the son of God who has come as the savior of the world, and we want to learn his will. And then it even gives the promise that Jesus Christ, this Messiah who would come, shall judge between the nations and decide disputes for many peoples. He would do this through his word being applied to the issues of the day. Uh, Isaiah is not anticipating a voice from heaven here, but rather the ministry of the word of God in the kingdom of God to the benefit and instruction and blessing of all the nations of the world. It's a promise that anticipates the fulfillment of that great commission that Jesus Christ has given. Well, we are to the end of our time, so we'll close with a word of prayer, and we'll, uh, Lord willing, resume our time together next week. Our Father, we give you thanks for the blessed truth of your word. We thank you for establishing your kingdom, a kingdom of light, that has been equipped with divine armor and weapons to fight against and overcome the very evil that resides in the hearts of men. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that divinely empowers this and makes it effective. And we pray that you would bless the ministry of the church. We pray that we would see the conquest over the kingdom of darkness with men and women being delivered and set free from their bondage to darkness. And we pray that you would bless us to be better equipped ourselves with your word, to speak that word and live that word and apply that word in every area of life to the glory of God and in our submission to and service of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. We pray in his name. Amen.